Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and, and welcome to Call to Action. The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Rosie and Faris Jacob. They're a rare case where the term power couple seems an understatement. Both award-winning strategists, creative directors, writers, consultants and public speakers, they've been living on the road for a decade and counting. Together they form Genius Steals, a nomadic creative consultancy helping brands, agencies and rebels find the awesome at the intersection of new communication ideas, new product concepts and new ways of thinking. On their consultancy's name, they say it's called Genius Steals because we believe ideas are new combinations and that nothing can come from nothing. But copying is lazy. We believe the best way to innovate is to look at the best of that which came before and combine those elements into new solutions. Welcome to the show, Rosie and Faris. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that this is going to be less shit than Pokemon Go. What a <laughs> part. Thanks for having us. Not at all, not at all. I've been picked up on that numerous times. It's clearly not a short-term bandwagon of shite, but it's become a distinctive asset of sorts, so it's had to stay. <laughs> right, seven quick-fire questions. We're going to start with you, Rosie, and then we'll alternate. So, speak or write? Speak. The Effies or can? Effies, I guess. Right, back to Rosie. Notorious B.I.G. or Jay-Z? Jay-Z. Faris, everywhere or somewhere? Everywhere. Chat, GPT or Dali? Oh, gosh. I'm going to go with Chat, GPT today. It used to be Dali, but look okay. Chat, GPT. Faris, a Gossage or Ogilvy? Gossage for me. Nice, I agree. Correct answer. Right, lastly, Rosie, ask Jeeves or ask Faris? <laughs> Ask Ferris for sure. He's a little more humorous. <laughs> yeah. Even though he nicks his jokes from 80s movies, as you just explained. Yes, absolutely. He, but Ferris has this amazing ability to be able to summarize succinctly these really complex ideas. Jeeves just spits back out the internet. Ferris like, <laughs> will add in that little bit of humor, but also make it make sense to any audience. Look, so he's I, a clear winner. I <laughs> upgrade our metaphors. It used to be Ask Ferris, and now it's GTP Ferris. I feel like that's <laughs> We always start the show by asking the guests to talk about their path to where they are now. And yours is yours is certainly not a linear one for many reasons. But could you start by telling our audience what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper job? So my first ever job was babysitting. I absolutely loved kids and I even made my own flyers that I would send around to the neighbors or put in their mailboxes or put up at like the church or something. So 
I loved babysitting. In fact, my uh, after graduating high school, I told my parents I was going to go backpacking through Europe, and they were like, eh, well, no, we're not going to pay for that. And I was like, well, I actually have $10,000 saved from babysitting. And they were like, wait, what? Okay, I guess wow. you are going to go to Europe and do what you want. So that was like first job. And then first proper job, actually, I mean, this came up in your quick fire questions. I had to pick Jay-Z because I worked for Jay's entertainment marketing company, Translation, co-founded by Steve Stout. So that was really cool because I grew up in Nashville. My dad's in the music industry. I kind of thought that I wanted to be in the music business. I studied music business at at college. But then what was really cool about entertainment marketing is that, you know, that marketing side of things, we got to think about how we could connect with consumers. And it wasn't just about product placement. I think back in 2008, there was a whole lot of product placement. And there was a lot of stuff that didn't feel, I don't know, real, like Tiger Woods and advertisements for Buick. And you're like, Tiger Woods doesn't drive a Buick. This doesn't make sense. And so Jay-Z and Steve Stout, they really focused on instead of artists selling out, artists buying in, being funded by these big brands who have a lot more money sometimes than these labels. So truly thankful for that first job, despite the incredibly um, chaotic environment. Nice. I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that anything untowards happened or any theft was involved, but how do you get $10,000 from babysitting? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was a whole lot of babysitting. And I remember at one point too, I had one family who would travel and I actually got to stay overnight with the kids, which presented a problem when one of the kids got sick. And I mean, I was in high school. So I was like, I guess I'm going to have to skip my classes and go home with these kids. So I think like overnights and then I would also do a lot of holiday, you know, babysitting where you would do stuff on New Year's Eve with a bunch of kids. I even ran my own summer camp that I would do for little kids. I'm like thinking back, I guess I was cultivating those entrepreneurial skills Mm. very I was a mother's helper before I could even stay at home alone babysitting. I would go and stay at people's houses while the moms were just doing housework and stuff. Surprisingly, too, just close the loop on that. As much as I love kids, I think everyone thought I was going to be this amazing mom, which let's be honest, I would be an amazing mom, but I are child free by choice these days. So maybe all of that exposure to kids was actually really great birth control in leading me to believe like, I love kids. Giles, I'm sure yours are great, but I love giving them back. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No, I, I coach football to a load of young kids and I've had, I can't buy a loud enough whistle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. No, no, no. There's no, well, firstly, there's nothing wrong with, with not having kids. We've had so many people come to work at GASP and, and many have described it as the best natural contraceptive because we, we all moan so much about our kids. So uh, there's definitely mm-hmm. a truth in there. And then in terms of uh, following music as a career choice, and just a quick kind of caveat to that question that's about to follow is we asked this question intentionally because I know so many young, but not always young people who worry and are very anxious, understandably, about there being a perceived right way into any industry. So was music something that just naturally happened because you said your father worked in the music industry and there was some interest? Or- yes, absolutely. I, and, but when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a pop artist. Like I loved Andy Warhol, Mel Ramos, Roy Lichtenstein. It just turns out that while I have really great handwriting, that's like the limit of my artistic <laughs> sort of skills and expression. And so as I was kind of thinking about it, I'm like, well, you know, 
what do I really want to do? I want to move the needle of pop culture. And Warhol did that through brands. And music does that as well, of course. Like when I worked for Translation, you know, we partnered Chris Brown with Wrigley and his song Forever, which was, you know, number one hit on the Billboard charts for, I think it was something like 30 weeks. People were dancing down the aisles at their weddings to this song. I mean, that song was funded by Wrigley. Um, Double Your Pleasure, Double Your Fun was in the chorus. And so that's been something that I've always been obsessed with and fascinated by is like, how, how can I be a part of pop culture and how can I sort of, yeah, move that needle in some capacity? That's a really good, like, I suppose if you're going to draw a Venn diagram of art and then the kind of commercial creative world that we live in, Andy Warhol's probably a good name to have in that little overlap. And I've made this point before that my background was more like fine art. And most of my friends from that time of my life in college and university have pursued more artistic careers or or less commercial creative careers, should I say. And there is a weird tension between us when we meet up even today that I've somehow sold my soul because I'm much more interested in in the brand side of things. But it's interesting how that was your start as well. And you've kind of made that move via, you know, Jay-Z. What a cool opportunity into into the more commercial side of things. Right. I think there's also just this idea of having the five-year plan or having the 10-year plan, which is well and good. Like I'm a planner myself. I like to have goals. And I think the best way to get where you're going is to have some idea of where you want to go. At the same time, the second job I had, which was launching Motorola's global social media presence and ultimately acting as a community manager and social strategist all in one, that job did not even exist when I was in college. So I think we also can get obsessed with sort of lining up where we think we want to be. And I believe a lot of luck is taking your blinders off and being open to, you know, the possibilities at large. So a lot of my time in New York, while I had that job, was going to these New York tech meetups, hanging out with the Tumblr geeks, hanging out with people who were just real geeks, right? And learning about social media and new media, and then ultimately sort of helping brands figure out their roles in that space as well. Yeah, so re- well said. That's a really good point about taking off the blinders. And actually, yeah, how how can you know where you're going to be in so many years' time when you are working with so much emerging technology and applications that you know quite clearly won't exist yet? Amazing, Faris. I, 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 I feel like we've robbed you of airtime. Can I can I ask you the same question I started with Rosie? Yeah, sure. It's funny, England's a bit different, isn't it? We don't, I mean, nobody offered to pay me to do babysitting or offered or asked me to do babysitting when I was a kid. I don't know if that's the thing. There's a message there, Faris. Maybe. Um, I guess growing up in suburbia in London, I was near a golf course, so I picked up golf balls from the rough ground and sold them back to the golf pro shop. That was the, the extent of my teenage jobs, probably. Then proper jobs, well, again, like, you know, Degrees in England are sort of non-vocational, so there weren't any music business elective courses <laughs> in my English degree. There was just literature and uh, language bits. So it doesn't really lead you any particular. So the first job I got in 99 out of school, out of college, university, was a management consultancy that had just started up to help build digital businesses. And it was an exciting time in dot-com one. A lot of fluff, a lot of money. And that all went away about a year later when it collapsed functionally because... The dot-com explosion imploded, I guess. Then, yeah, to, to your sort of point, I suppose, to Rosie's slightly circuitous path through different territories, after consulting and digital business building and that kind of stuff, which I guess has always been part of my 
overall broad career arc maybe you know the internet's quite interesting isn't it <laughs> absolutely yeah like i then got a job at record label briefly i then went to work for maxim magazine and did internships at other lads mags because <laughs> i thought that was going to be a good way to you know mess about and meet women the latter wasn't true um <laughs> and then i got a job because i didn't know what to do on a graduate scheme uh omd and media planning which I think is a structural difference, right? Graduate programs used to be a real thing where no one in the UK that comes out of an undergraduate degree knows how to do anything really like in business terms because they don't do that sort of degree unless, you know, that's not how it works usually or often more accurately. So they used to do these big structured training and I kind of like being taught and learning stuff or getting paid. That's always kind of appealed to me. And going back to your original this or that question, Ferris actually had an email address at OMD called askferris at omd.com. OMD UK. Or sorry, OMD. OMDUK.com. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so people would quite literally send him questions that they had, and Ferris would queue it up into search engines in ways that they didn't quite well, know like, how Google to. Google was pretty new, <laughs> and like it still used Boolean operators, and there was some sense of file structure and searching, and you know, there was like, you know, the basic thing you learn Googling put more words in, you get better results. That's quite. Yeah. So it takes a while to learn that. And in that brief period, again, you could probably cast it as a characterization of my entire career in inverted commas. You're sort of just <laughs> looking at the internet and being about six months ahead of where other people historically have been. And that's usually enough to point at it and go, that seems interesting. Yeah. Did you at any stage during that, um, I'm guessing that must have been, what, five, six, seven year window? Maybe like three, something like three, something like that. Yeah, people take. It was pretty quick. And what part of that did you feel more kind of settled and interested in what you were doing versus when, you know, you came out with a BA in English and I've seen it in an interview, you say, yeah. what do I do with that? Exactly. Yeah. Never, probably, was be accurate. Like, the first thing was like, I got a job and it looked and felt like having a job was supposed to look and feel like in my head. So it was like, I had to wear a suit and shave every day. And I had to pretend to know a lot of stuff and sell that advice to people who were grown ups running actual businesses, which I thought was hilarious and seemed appropriate. And you had to know a bit about the internet and various research skills and think about stuff. And, you know, I thought that was fine. So I just thought that's what jobs were. And then when that went away because of the dot com collapse thing, I was trying to be more conscious about what I wanted. And I was like, I want to wear trainers and do something cooler than this, which ultimately meant like I took a sort of two thirds pay cut for my next job, if not more, because consulting jobs pay actual money and media jobs didn't right at the beginning level. So, but like wearing trainers wasn't enough, I guess is what I learned. I wanted to wear trainers. That was important. I realized that and not shave every day. That was important too, but it wasn't intellectually rigorous at all. It was just nothing in some ways for me. So I got stuck with it that on that side, it was all culture, no rigor, I suppose. So I needed something in between, or I thought I needed something in between that appealed to both sides. And I thought learning media planning would help, which it sort of did. It was the next step towards the next thing anyway. Do you think the balance has changed since, I'm guessing we're, sim- we're a similar vintage, Faris, you and I, but do you think that the balance between jobs which are intellectually vigorous versus ones that aren't, and that correlation between in some in those you have to wear suits and in the latter you wear trainers. Do you think that's changed slightly in recent years? So, I mean, like, maybe I don't know at the front line well enough. I mean, there's always been the division, right? My contemporaries from university went primarily into politics, journalism, law, finance, 
those things, accountancy, whatever, unless they were already rich, in which case artists. And then, which was, which was fine. And, but that's basically how it worked, right? The Ruskin kids were all mostly rich kids. That was just how it works. Not always, but a lot of them were. And that's, that sort of continues today. And like the suit jobs pay more at the beginning part. They own more of your life. The non-suit jobs, like I found out, advertising will also try and take as much of your life as you, it'll take off you. So that part is definitely, and there's kind of, you know, if you wanted to be really cynical about it, you could argue the account planning function is a way to get kind of, you know, analytical thinkers into an advertising system where they previously weren't necessarily necessary <laughs> in some ways. But do I think it's different? Maybe I don't, like jobs are all blurry now a bit. And I think the culture of work has definitely changed in some areas, but you can sort of see reactionary flexing, right? You know, banks and law firms really want you to wear a suit and turn up every day and be in an office. It makes them feel much better about paying you a lot of money. So you can sort of see that part of the world is still very in one place. And in our world, it's quite different, I think. Yeah. But. Agreed. When you say our world, do you mean the world that you're currently living in your kind of nomadic adventures? Yeah. I mean, I guess our professional world, like we play with agencies, with clients, with media companies, with event companies, all across kind of the value chain of creative industrial provision and various aspects thereof. So mm. there's definitely a lot of smartness in our world. There's a lot of technology smartness, a lot of strategy smartness, a lot of creative smartness, but that's a different kind of thing. But yes, I guess I still rock up to things sometimes when I have gigs. And it's interesting to me that like, you know, you go to a media gig versus a creative agency gig. There's a different cultural split. They dress differently. They act a bit differently. And I still just rock up usually in jeans and T-shirts. But, you know, <laughs> I love this. I feel that there's, a, there's quite a thread there. And I imagine that thread grew somewhat <laughs> and is linked to your uh, you and Rosie. I was going to say going on the run again. That's not, not a fair way of putting it. Yeah, um, in some ways. Yeah, we haven't worn colored disguise yet. We stand out too much. We don't blend in enough to be on the run. <laughs> no, amazing. not for long at least. But like, that feeling is there. Like when I was yeah, on the board absolutely. of agencies in New York, you know, they wanted to have board meetings on Sundays, twenty-four hour email. In some ways, like no matter where I went, I was always working and worrying about stuff, which didn't suit me. So yeah, I sort of was running away a bit. It, it was also funny, though, I'm thinking about how in the ad agency life, you know, back in the day when we had the jobs and offices, people would ask if we were dressed up, oh, are you interviewing somewhere? Um, that was always the joke. You know, if you saw someone dress up, uh-oh, they're like on a job interview. But I'm like, no, no, no. If I'm interviewing somewhere, I'm going to aggressively dress down. I need to lower their expectations. I don't want them to think that I'm going to be dressing up for work every day and have the wrong idea about me. Do you me. think I'm going to be a lawyer? Is that similar in the US as much as it is in the UK, Rosie, in terms of university or college equivalent courses that aren't quite as vocational? So going back to Faris's point about coming out with a BA in English and not quite sure where that needs to be applied. Is that the same in the US? What do you do with a BA in English? It is the opening song to Avenue Q, if I recall correctly. Yes. So (laughs) I I would say it's pretty different because in the US, we have more vocational degrees. And then equally, there's a huge emphasis on internships throughout college. So whereas in the UK, it seems like there's more of a an emphasis on the graduate training schemes after you've graduated during college. I mean, even as part of my music business 
you know, course, I had an internship with a venue. I was also studying public relations as part of that major. I also was given or assigned an internship with a woman who did PR for bands. So I think that emphasis of learning by doing is maybe more present in American academia. However, the part that we miss and the part that I think I'm sometimes jealous of, um, you know, when it comes to Ferris is that the root in theory and applying the pragmatism through that lens of academic theory. Sometimes I feel Mm -hmm. like what we get is so practical that then when you're tasked with, okay, why does this work? We're having to go back and kind of plug in the holes. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I dig that. I like theoretical frameworks a lot. I live in a world of abstraction, but I, I, I do think like there's a couple of bits, right. Which are really important to consider here, which is a, like university experiences in America are multi-subject and then you elect to do a major, but you can change it throughout the period. And like, there's a lot of, you're forced to take a certain number of courses about things that aren't your subject, right? It's inherently broader than our very linear narrowing at 16, essentially in our education, which I don't think is necessarily super helpful, frankly, because, you know, diversity of thought comes from humanities and sciences together, ideally, right? Uh, equally, when when I went to university, at least, depending on, again, if our vintage is the same, I think I was the last year that it was free, which obviously changes the relationship you have with education quite dramatically. Mm, absolutely. In, in various ways, good and bad, potentially. Like, I didn't really think about working when I was at university. I assumed I'd be an academic since I was already having quite a nice time. I thought, I'll just do this. <laughs> but it's quite different being an academic than being a student, it turns out. And the cost in America is so extraordinarily high yeah. now. So the league tables equivalent are highest ROI jobs out of these (laughs) particular courses at these particular schools now, because you're putting so much money in, you're looking to go, I need to make this much money back. It's a very early decision in kind of commercializing education, I suppose, to Rosie's point about the the idea that it's not for work is nonsense to Americans. Whereas in England, you have this sort of ivory tower bit where you're like, I'm just learning, you know, happy academic stuff kind of. Yeah, good points. And I think that narrowing that's almost forced upon you when you're about 16 years old can only add to the anxiety that's probably felt at that stage of people's lives where they feel like they have to make this fixed decision. Right. I was reading this analogy about like, what if we treated education like riding a bike? So for example, right now, the way that it is, it's like all your life, you learn about different pieces of the bicycle and how it works together. And it isn't until you graduate from college that people are like, okay, now you can actually get on the bike and ride it for the first time. And it's like, well, all of the experience about knowing about the pieces and how they work together will not really truly prepare you for riding the bike. What prepares you for riding the bike is many times of getting on the bike and falling off the bike and realizing, okay, this is how it all fits together. So there's some muscle memory, but there's that kinesthetic learning by doing. So I really appreciated that from the American side of things. But I still think even in the US, we have further to go because, I mean, I remember I had one teacher who hated my sideware, right? This was for my new, I studied new media and music business and public relations. So this was on the new media track. And the teacher was, you know, kind of older. And he didn't like that I had black slides. 
And I got like some points taken off of my presentation for this poor, you know, deck design, essentially. And then I had an internship with Translation, Jay-Z's agency, right? And we used all black slides with white text. So I came back that next semester and I'm like, look, sir, you have not been in the working world for many years now. And it turns out people do use colorful presentations, including back black backgrounds with white text. So I think like one of the problems that we run into. That'll let him. That'll teach. <laughs> oh, I was like so righteous. I'm like, I I will set up a meeting with but you. Like, to tell you, I, I do, I do yeah, think in you. a way, it's a good early piece of learning about how incredibly subjective pitching is. <laughs> sure. There's no right answer. There's simply the one that it gets picked. That's just yes. what happens, and that's the nature yeah. of our business. And that's one of the frustrating things because it is like that. That's but I think it, you know? more generally, where I was going with that though is sometimes our practitioners aren't necessarily our teachers, and sometimes our teachers have not been practitioners for a long time, and that can be problematic, especially in things that are fast moving, like digital, like new media. Yeah, I see that, and I think also because like the last generation or two minted a great deal of undergraduates in America for all kinds of interesting reasons. Like in America, because graduate schemes don't exist as much. In fact, they're very uncommon in my experience, but I don't know universally. But there's way more dependence on on schools, on postgraduate degrees in general for like professional competitiveness. And those postgrad degrees in industry in advertising are ad schools and, you know, brand center and portfolio schools, all of which kind of a part of that process in America. Well, you got paid for your graduate scheme program, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of internships, and I mean, this is be changing now, but when I was in college, most internships were unpaid. Yeah. And if they were paid, it was, you know, the bare minimum to survive. It's like they're giving right. you, you know, some small amount of cash in a subway card. That doesn't even cover a New York City rent. So I think that's the other thing is like, in the U.S., there's a focus on internships throughout college because the idea is that you're already not making a whole lot of money during this form of your life. Whereas for the graduate schemes in the U.K., it's after you've graduated, okay, you're entering the workforce, you're getting some subsidized learning, as you said. You're yeah. getting paid yeah. and you're kind of learning these professional skills. Yeah. The only real practitioners I know who I was going to say are professors in universities in the U.K. are actually, sadly, I should have said were professors in the UK they've all left in the last few years for various reasons of course and I had the trouble is I'm, I'm in danger of going on a long rant now Rosie and because uh, oh, I please. agree particularly with with your points that you were just making and I had this conversation it was on our 100th episode with Mr Ritson and he kind of made the point that sadly in the UK it seems that most marketing professors become marketing professors because they want to become a professor not because they have any interest in marketing and so that kind mm-hmm. of you know that knowledge gap is very very severe and when there is so much new media whatever we want to call it technology advanced Mm-hmm. or different communications and products emerging they're, they're clearly not in the best position to, to teach you and then if you add in going back to Faris's point the fact that the finances involved in attending universities is, is only growing and becoming more and more significant then that mm-hmm. issue becomes even you know further inflamed yeah I mean I, the academy has a lot of issues in general I will say though there is a lot of interesting academic research into advertising that very rarely filters through into the industry unless it comes out of Ehrenberg Bass or whatever which is possibly the same equally because there is interesting stuff in academic research libraries that most of us tend not to look at as a default mechanism but anyway that's why we have you babe yeah i know you yeah. do that deep dive for us tell that's us why what we're we resurrecting ask faris yeah, yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right 
I'm always frustrated when we recruit grads that they've never even heard of Jeremy Bullmore. And I think, what the hell have you been learning? But um, anyway, I'm going to make a really tenuous link here to one of the meaty topics that I wanted to dig into, which was your life on the road. What have you learned? We've had so many questions basically asking, what have you learned in your decade of living as nomads? But to make that question slightly more specific, we had a listener question in from, and I don't know the, the correct name, of this person, but he goes by Dad's Cafe, better lattes than never on Twitter. <laughs> but he says, have you adapted your approach to accommodate differences between countries, economic, infrastructure, commerce, education? Also, do you find you can transfer and apply learnings globally, which was my experience? Yeah. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> so, different markets have really different price parity for the kinds of services we tend to sell, for example like agencies and the economic structure they're in is very different in say India than it is in America where there's thousands of agencies and the most media money you can imagine right so they're highly different in that sense that said at a certain level yes international works because particularly if you go through a lens of planning planning people tend to be the ones who tend to be more up on the discourse because they're less confident in their subjectivity by design. That's not their job. Their job is to provide evidence for things and directional evidence, you know what I mean, towards our different partners. So the planning community tends to be more, for us, historically, it's been quite a global community in some degree that way. And yeah, learnings definitely transfer. There is obviously cultural nuance, and we make this very clear, especially in in cultures where advertising is very different in how it lives in culture and the culture itself is very different Then everything has to be filtered that way. But humans are still humans. So, yeah. I would say one of the things we frequently talk about is, you know, not being a prisoner of your own preferences. And this can apply personally, right? It can mean, okay, we're in Bulgaria, we're with clients and they want us to go to this restaurant where the most popular dish is horse. And you're like, okay, well, didn't think I was going to be eating this animal that I've been riding around at summer camp. Okay, that's like challenging that belief. But then there's also just not being a prisoner of your preferences in the sense of we were raised in, you know, our own career bubbles and our own agency worlds. Ferris had some more exposure because he was in London and Sydney and then New York. But for the first, you know, part of my career, I was in the New York agency scene. And so challenging myself to understand that the way that we did it on Madison Avenue or at any given agency that I worked at is not necessarily the right way. And being exposed to so many different thinkers and so many different structures and so many ways of tackling problems or thinking about people and cultures, I think has been really, really helpful. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's basically like to that point, some sense of intellectual arbitrage because small agencies are really interested in how big agencies do things and big agencies are really interested in how small agencies do things. (laughs) Media agencies wonder how creative agencies do things and creative agencies have no idea what media agencies are doing and all that kind of stuff. They get confused (laughs) because people tend to have these linear experience pathways through the industry and beyond. Like people are very rarely a creative director and a planner. That happens vanishingly rarely now. Maybe it happened back in the day, but there's a sort of like industrial linearity of the kind of grown up version of industry, you know, and then doing a regional as well. Like there are agencies all over the world that don't have planners, for example, which I didn't realize because I only worked (laughs) at big agencies and like, but even the smallest big agencies are still big agencies. That's the thing you have to understand. America has 5,000 ad agencies. You've not heard of most of them because they work in a few states and they're much bigger than most agencies in London. (laughs) <laughs> because America is so much bigger. 
it's so much bigger <laughs> that it's also hard to get your head around. I would also say like one of the things that we are big believers in is feedback loops. Fierce claims not to like feedback, but no feed- one likes feedback. I made, I made a break. I said no one likes feedback. But feedback loops on your own life, I think are important. So, you know, to the point of like, are we, are we changing the way that we work? It's like, constantly we're changing the way we work it 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 can be on a day-to-day or even year-to-year basis of just saying like what do we want to do more of what do we want to do less of but then also you have those learning moments that you didn't bargain for like you know when we decided to do a contract in pounds and then the night before our workshop the uk voted on the whole brexit thing and we lost a significant amount of money you know tens of thousands of dollars just vanished in the course of an evening and it's like those moments suck of course like it's no fun to you know have those sort of learning experiences at the same time every single experience does add value to how you're living so okay now we're going to do things in dollars and just stick to one currency rather than having to arbitrage the yeah doing the forex sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah i've always imagined there'd be huge benefits of sorts being unfamiliar with a culture or at least a market and i wonder if that nods back to your point rosie of not being a prisoner of your own preferences and as much as you know it is it forces that blank page or market orientation whatever you want to call it yeah that's true in a way i think when i had an innovation focused role i had to work out what that meant and i had to ask people that had done their role before what it meant and no one really seemed to know, to know. <laughs> but a part of what i promised to do is there are a lot of assumptions that are so deeply embedded in the process and the thinking of, of cultures and agencies that like no one even questions them anymore. And yeah, if you come to them from a different culture, then they do things differently. Then you can go, oh, okay, look, that difference is interesting. Why is that difference there? Is that a good difference? Is that a bad difference? Right. What we, yeah. So that is always interesting. I think yes. And, and you're always kind of an outsider. Yes, we're always a tourist, no matter where we are now. Even when I'm back in the UK or America, I'm still a tourist. It feels like. I don't, right. I yeah. totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Another question that we have from Jake Saunders is how do you handle the in-between spaces? So in-between big projects, in-between gigs, is there always something on the stove or do you think real downtime is key to staying fresh? And before you answer that, I have noticed in our research, there's quite a few points that are made. And Faris, you made the point earlier as well. I can't remember if it was pre or post recording, but regardless of engineering time to to think and, you know, just put your yeah. trainers on, whatever it might be. So you've got yeah. that downtime because it is so important. So how, yeah, so how do you handle those in-between spaces? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's where <laughs> it's where I focus on being healthy. That's yes. what I do in those time, basically. Like, there's that old thing about the five balls you keep up in the air, you know, family, health, work, friends, something else. And it's hard to keep them all in the air. So when I'm working a lot, my health goes completely to the wayside and then when I'm not working as much I re put energy back into trying to be healthy because I can't do more than one thing at a time apparently um but more generally I think to to Ferris's point we do we try to engineer the in-betweenness moments that's why we have built this lifestyle that we have and worked so hard on creating a life we love is we realized, you know, when we worked in the agency world and you have, well, in America, 10 days of vacation, it's just not enough time away from your desk. It's not enough time to see the world. It's barely enough time to go to all the weddings and kiss all the babies. Right. And so (laughs) that has been something that we've prioritized from the start. We're in Seattle right now, final night here, but we've been here since you know, for a month. And that was because my little sister was having her first kid and we 
we've engineered it so that we can be here to help out, to cook dinners, to clean kitchens, to cuddle the babies while they're sleeping, to, you know, in whatever ways that we can. And we did this with my middle sister when she had her kids as well. So the in-betweenness, I think this is a time of rest and rejuvenation. Ferris and I are walking between five to 10 miles a day, and that could include listening to podcasts and feeling inspired by that. It might be just bopping around to country music for me in the sunshine. Mm -hmm, Sometimes it's phone dates with people who we don't get to see year round. I have a million. Less so me, I'm a middle-aged man. You had two phone dates yesterday. True, that is true. It's unusual. But I I think I hear from people, oh, I just wouldn't know what to do with all of that free time. And I'm like, oh, sit down with me. I've got a list of a hundred things for you. Like, like, hi, Jake. Thanks for the question. I'm a big friend on Twitter and stuff. So the, it could be facetious to say the in-between project is what I call being alive or living. That's I like <laughs> I like that part a lot. I try and focus as much as I can on getting as much of that back into my life as possible, which isn't the, the working part. That's a bit too facetious, though. I do need time to recover. Like to Rosie's point, the way I work best, the way I think we work best is in short bursts. Sprints. Yeah. And then with, with the defined endpoints where I know that things are going to stop at a certain point because then I can put my all into it for three months or a week or whatever. But stretching that out for too long, my stamina declines. The ideas that come get less and less, you know, interesting to me and stuff. So I do think it's really how we structured our life. And also commercially and professionally, we can structure our cash flow and our overheads very specifically to allow for this, right? So if we want to go and chip off and spend three months in India, we can drop our overhead base extremely dramatically, which means we can sort of like manage cash flow across the year by changing our overheads, you know, up and down. Right. That's what I was going to add to is like, it's important to remember we live in a capitalist world where money is required for goods and services. Oh, yeah. We are not trust fund kids, although it sounds quite lovely. If you have a trust fund and you want us to be your trust fund babies, just let us know we're available. Um, but <laughs> this is like a result of, you know, thinking about cash flow for the year and going, okay, Rather than feeling stressed in moments of in-betweenness, we want a long enough runway so that we can have longer periods of time off. So, you know, we're trying to keep cash flow a year out in advance rather than just throughout the next project. And of course, this comes in part from experience, but also just being around for a while, right? We've been running our business and living this nomadic life for Mm -hmm. 10 years now. So I'm not saying that's something that we had year one where we just had that sort of confident and comfortableness. I think still sometimes it will be January and we usually take off the month, like from Thanksgiving through New Year's Eve. So it's a longer stretch and January 15th comes around and we're logging back online and I'm looking at Ferris going like, what do we what do we do if no one wants to hire us this it's year? Always, right? It's, it's always a possibility. <laughs> January fifteenth is never the easiest time, is it? January fifteenth, and then you pay taxes oh, on the tax, April fifteenth, yeah, and you're taxes, just like, oh, yeah. man. insurance issues in America. That's a nightmare. It's like it's not the best time. So frankly. we're smiling over here, but I don't want to be like aloof and unrealistic either. I want to point out, like, we still have these thoughts. It's just that we have them less and less over time. And part of that is by just keeping our, you know, making sure that we have those funds so that we have longer. Yes. And our business is not structured in a way that has ongoing overheads as much as possible. Correct. Like we turn everything off or we can almost actually not everything because there's various people we work with and newsletters and that kind of stuff, which continues every week and stuff. But, you know, we can dial it down to a point where it's manageable. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you, you know, you sound aloof at all, to be honest. And I don't for one second think that you are immune to anxiety at all. I mean, everyone Ooh. has that. And like the mechanics of your life seem to be really inspiring. And actually, I wonder if people kind of understand or what they 
assume of your nomadic life as being one that makes it easier to allow for the time in between and everyone else is kind of stuck in this weird I don't know legacy working system where they feel like they can't break out of it I'm you know I'm assuming that's probably worse in in the states than it is in the UK just because you guys don't seem to take holidays <laughs> so, yeah uh, it's frowned upon it's really frowned upon in corporate America in a way that's very hard to get your head around if you've not worked in America they really don't like it and they make you very uncomfortable if you take it at all you take your allotted holiday especially in positions of seniority it's very much frowned upon and commented on it's very dark but at the same time whilst that's possibly true people project a lot because the logistical mechanics of living the way we do is extraordinarily complex there is a lot of life management that comes from not having where you live for a year in advance determined <laughs> right so like logistically it's it's a whole set of work that is ongoing it's like it's like planning a vacation every week just to be alive right <laughs> you've got to constantly be planning a new place to stay so you're like that part it takes up a lot more time than people i think understand but anyway yeah and when people have the aspirations to be nomadic and ask us about you know how can i engineer my life to be more like this we try to reset it and i think what people are reacting to is our happiness and they see us living this life that we love having you know really intentionally created something that we want to live every day it might not be the nomadic thing they might think they want to be nomadic what they actually want is to find what makes them happy or to build their life to include more moments of their own happiness within. So that's where we we turn it back to this children's book artist, Dallas Clayton. And he says, make a list of things you love, make a list of things you do every day, compare, adjust accordingly. So it might not be being nomadic. It might not be traveling all around the world. You might love having a house and love having that safety and security. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Like that's great. Instead, just think about what you want more of in your own life rather than looking to other people and going, I want what they have. You know, it's projective fantasy, right? There's a lot of trade-offs inevitably. Being an employee comes with its own set of frustrations and its own set of benefits. Running your own business comes with a a different set of problems, but it's just as many problems, if not more, and a set of benefits that are different as well. So it's like they're trade-offs regardless of what you choose. But yeah, that's one of the big ones. Do you work for yourself or other people and so on, you know? We interrupt this podcast as we thought your ears had suffered enough of the monotone ramblings of the host. Now this is a voice. Most pods drop an ad into these interruptions, not gasp. We won't awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189-952-007 to talk brand identity or positioning like other companies did just the other week. Let's get you back to the show. Bollocks in today's world, bollocks matters. It is all about bollocks. The more bollocks you are, the more quality you are. Ah, the legendary Le Agency Holding Company CEO, George Tannenbaum from Call to Action, episode 46. Not what we were looking for. Asking the general oh, public for their opinion, Marvelous. be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped <laughs> us asking. So we we usually stick to, with two. We've got, oh, God knows, we've got dozens here. So listen, Paul Bailey, who I'm sure you know, works closely with Nick Ellis at Halo, who I know you know. Paul says, do you think it's enough for people to pay attention to your brand or do they need to then remember something about it? 
Yes, indeed. Hi, Paul. Like one of the great smart thinkers in our discourse, big fan of his thinking. So it's an important and very specific question, right? And I'm going to answer it with a bunch of hedging and vagary, inevitably, right? <laughs> you definitely should have done politics, Harris. Yeah. We did talk about this yesterday, Paul, too, to just clue you in. Ferris and I had a, had there, a discussion. Yeah, there are various different models for how what we do works. And attention, I think, is a perquisite, a prerequisite, if you like, but also a perquisite, <laughs> of getting communication to work in some fashion. Now, Low attention processing appears to have some measurable effects. Higher attention appears to have more measurable effects. And yes, to some degree, the point of access to someone's brain, attention, which you earn through entertainment usually is the cost of admission to someone's brain. You're, you're sort of trying to build memory structures, if you want to be Ehrenberg Bassian about it, uh, brands in the old sense of brand as a set of associations in someone's head from Feldwick. So yes, memory formation, I say, is important, but is it active memory or implicit memory, that becomes challenging. Sometimes we have a preference for things we've seen before because of the mere exposure effect without recognizing that that's what's happening. So, you know, Damasio calls it somatic marker hypothesis, which is like there are certain kinds of emotional encodings that happen in association with brands that happen at a a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. So your brain is developing these memories that aren't necessarily something but you could identify them in research or write them down but they're there enough that they can create a tiny bit of difference and that tiny bit of difference is probably all you need to get a significant effect in the choice and then over time the business so my answer is yes and also the memory is really complicated but yes probably I think the only other thing I would just add is we know that emotion is a really important thing it's just hard to get people to feel something if they're not paying attention to you, right? So attention is required in some capacity. And for longer term impact and larger scale impact, we probably need more than just attention. But especially in markets or in categories where there aren't a lot of people advertising or they have lower budgets or a lower share of voice, then sometimes attention can be that lever to push you just over the edge, as Ferris said. Yeah, I guess it's, you know, thinking about where strategy puts its force. And if you need, if you can't buy enough attention, you've got to get another way to get some. That's a good point. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever understand it fully? The same could be said for, I suppose, creative effectiveness. And I don't want to sound flippant here at all, but I find And it's a point that you've alluded to in terms of the amount of evidence that does exist these days about how advertising works, Mm -hmm. particularly on the topic of creativity, perhaps more than attention, although that's, you know, it's it's, it's clearly very complicated. Mm -hmm. But it's it's almost like, is it E.B. White who said, understanding comedy is like dissecting a frog, you understand it better, but the frog dies or something. (laughs) I wonder if there's something there that we're at risk of becoming too formulaic, certainly with creativity with the amount of studies that seem to be... uh... Yeah, okay, there's two things here. I would say that historically, I would say something like attention is pretty complex because it's an emergent aspect of the most complex phenomena in the human experience, consciousness, which is completely unknown to us, functionally speaking, and there are more interconnected neurons in the human brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It operates at a level of complexity so much higher than our understanding capacity at this point that we're sort of poking at a black box with sticks and we don't (laughs) really know what's happening in like sort of Skinner terms, if you like, right? Mm -hmm. So consciousness, desire, human behavior, these are pretty big topics that advertising is trying to tackle, assimilate, and then deploy commercially and effectively, which is always going to be hard and interesting and great. So that's that level. Creative effectiveness, yeah, we take this a lot when we do workshops and training and consulting in this area. Something like, look, 
there are three things you should be aware of before we do this. One, you can't decompile a complex system into its element components and individually optimize the components, then put them back together because complexity is a function of interaction of elements mm-hmm. and the context it's in. Right. Yeah. So just knowing that certain things make Hollywood blockbusters successful doesn't let you build a Hollywood blockbuster out of pieces. You still need something else, right? That said, certain things are more likely to work than other things. And you can sort that as a baseline at the bottom and sort of go, look, we know some things tend to do certain things better than others, but it's never going to be a formula exactly. It's a a set of shapes and frameworks and elements to consider. And if you haven't done any of them, it's probably concerning. (laughs) But context ultimately is the most important determinant. The same piece of creative will work very differently depending on context. And ultimately that final bit of context trumps everything I think backwards but anyway and where we're pushing with creative effectiveness too is just against the idea of solely relying on your gut because we've all been in situations where we've seen creative presented and the client asked well which route is your favorite and why and the creative director is like well my gut's telling me it's route a or whatever territory it might be and this just doesn't lead to fruitful discussions in terms of how this work can be made better so while I don't think there, you know, like Farrah said, there's not a formula that we can use. If there was, we'd all be using it and we'd be getting bullseyes and it, every and time. And it would stop working. If, and it yeah. Would, yeah, because of that, it would stop working. Yeah, exactly that. It's an arms race, right? It's a cognitive arms race to some degree. It's like in social media early days when it was like the best time to post is Tuesdays at 1 p.m. <laughs> yeah, right. And then everyone posts on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. It's like now the best time to post is Wednesday at mm. 3, you know, or whatever it might be. So I think rather than simply, you know, creating these evaluation tools that are going to get so specific as to what you can do. For us, it's about giving people the tools to have better conversations and discussions around creative work. One of the things that's like really simple that I'll just throw out there is listen to how many questions in the conversation start with, is this going to work? Or is this an example of this? Does this have distinctive brand assets? Anything that can end up with yes or no. And most likely people who have done the work are going to give you the answer that you want to hear. And the discussion doesn't really go any places. So changing just simply to how does this include distinctive brand assets or why should this giving people chances for open-ended conversations really that can be a simple easy step that so many of us are missing out on yeah i think ritson says this right you are not the market is a really good way of thinking about this especially as a client you're not the market is very important to remember because your reaction is less well trained in some ways so a hot creative director who's doing really good work consistently their gut their instinct is aligned with the culture for a period right Mm -hmm. that never lasts forever if you produce an an ogilvy ad right now it wouldn't work in the same way as when he was writing press ads with the man with the hathaway shirt because the world is different and it wouldn't work as well and so it's like there's some sort of intuitive sense that really good creative directors apply to things that does allow it to sort of have some predictive capacity but you can't allow that to be The only thing. Yeah, because at a certain point, it won't be right. And that's why you need guardrails and thinking and insight and research and to de-risk stuff, because there's a sort of obvious homogeneity to the industry writ large, and that leads to blind spots. As we like to say, the opposite of an insight is a blind spot. 
Yeah, that's a much better way of framing it. I mean, there's only so many times you can be diplomatic when you're asked things like when is the best time to post on social media? And <laughs> I think one, one we've had numerous times is even just on emails. Is it best to do plain text or HTML? And I remember saying to a client once that I religiously read Bob Hoffman's newsletter every Sunday and I wouldn't care if Bob shouted it through my letterbox, <laughs> which let's be honest, I wouldn't put that past him. <laughs> it's totally irrelevant. It's focusing on the wrong things. So Yeah, and, and to your point, like email is one of those big areas that like we just messed up as an industry where the yeah. point of email we run a newsletter as you know people it has to be useful every single time it arrives otherwise people unsubscribe there's very low yeah. barriers to unsubscribing and most brands just said okay you bought this do you want to buy other things we also sell yeah. other things you know every yeah. day via email <laughs> like why would you do that why would anybody do that but that's because it's like i don't want to make actual decisions or try and think about what the audience might actually like i would just algorithmically churn out millions of emails and hope for a 0.1 percent return rate and i think what we're all saying and something that ferris and i also like bring up in these workshops too is critical thinking is required there's (laughs) not a one-size-fits-all solution like you're not working at starbucks right where there are just ways and methods operating procedures thank you babe yes yes have those right it's like important to really think critically about the context that you're working in what client you're working with or brand you're working with the media environment the the budgetary spend and then there's also things like how risky are we willing to be what is our risk tolerance internally because that's going to have a determining out factor and Mm -hmm. then besides that i think We also encourage our teams to get to know each other socially. You know, I know back in the Mad Men days, everyone was having drinks together and having a lot of fun. We are shocked with how many people just could not tell you a single fact about the people outside of the office, whether that's their colleagues or their clients. And the best way to have tough conversations is to have had a lot of easier conversations that are building these relationships in advance, right? You're much more likely to trust someone when they say, hey, I think we should take this risk if you have built yeah. this relationship over time. So, And the whole, copy, the whole topic of risk is confusing to some degree. It's like, what's the risk? What do you mean? Something bad's going to happen or what? What? Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. But like, ultimately, the client's taking all the risk because their budgets. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. there is obviously the bigger an organization is, the more conservative it inherently becomes. That's why massive corporations yeah. have agencies to some degree, because when you put it in house, it changes the nature of it. Some bits work really well, some bits work less well. Is there, I mean, we've crossed into another question that came in from Vil Rockenen. I've just murdered your surname, Vil. Huge apologies. But he asked, what needs to change for us? And by us, he means agencies, clients, people to create more effective work. Is there anything else you can add to your previous points there? Hmm. So because I'm somewhat strategic, I do think having some foundation of why you think what works works is necessary. It's required. Whether or not it's right, you need to have some sort of model of how things work. Because otherwise it's too hard. I think the story of the industry for the last, since I've been in it, so like 20 or so years, maybe, and like even beyond that, since the 90s when media agencies broke off, is fragmentation. The industry and media have been fragmenting and fragmenting and fragmenting ever further. And that inherently puts pressure on efficacy because the media environment is so different. And part of the way advertising sort of works at a socio-cultural level is to kind of like knowing other people have seen the same thing as you is quite an important part of how it seems to work. So that's always going to be harder now. But we have more evidence and more serious thinking and more studies that allow us to support some recommendations beyond kind of just to adapt, essentially, to adapt to the environment we're in. I mean, but it's it's 
it is the job. That's why we have planning. All of what Ferris said and the pragmatic Rosie coming in with incentives matter. So what is your, how are your teams bonus? Like I am very frequently asking our clients like, okay, how do you get a bonus? What are you incentivized or motivated by? Like, do you want to be featured in ad week or, you know, some sort of trade press? Are you trying to be on the fill in the blank nighttime TV show? Are you just trying to get a bonus, you know, so that you can build an additional, I don't know, living room on your house or sunroom, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Understanding why people are motivated is such a big part of advertising when we think about consumers, but we rarely apply that own thinking to our working relationships with our colleagues, our clients. So having those conversations and being upfront about that and those realistic sort of constraints, I think is one thing that we're frequently missing. And going along with that is understanding the business model of your clients and partners. So I I don't just mean like, okay, we're trying to sell 10% more to these specific customers. It's really trying to dive into how this business makes money so that you can understand... (laughs) Yes, and that's usually easier when the companies are smaller. Really big companies, the machine itself is so much bigger than any people who work there that understanding how the machines work becomes a different job, right? If you work with Nestle or Coke or any of the the mega marketers, understanding how their marketing operation is currently structured and how it's changing, which is always happening, is part of that job too, which is sort of where the consultancy part fits in for us a lot, which is kind of like we we know how agencies think and work we work inside them and outside them we know how clients and and we can sort of bring them to the table with a shared language and a shared set of like to Rosie's point honest incentives let's say (laughs) you know yeah that, that seems to be something that we've noticed ourselves in various different kind of corridors of conversations we've had with clients and actually that nods quite nicely to a couple of questions we've had one from Jimmy Bison not real name what do you think is a better way for advertising agencies to operate today And is it as simple as understanding how the big mechanics of the bigger brands works? Deliverable-based work, not time-based work. I think timesheets are a huge way of misaligning incentives, right? Because it incentivizes companies to take a long time to make more money. Like It makes no sense to me. I, I didn't understand it. 15 years ago when we worked in New York ad agencies, and I don't understand it now. Like You will not find a scope of work from us that is time-based. It is deliverable-based. I'm just going to tell this analogy, and I've told this to people before, but it's like, imagine that you have this like church, and there's an organ, and a beautiful organ, plays some music, and it's broken, right? And some smarty pants lady comes in, and she's like, comes to fix the organ, and then she gives the invoice, and she's like, okay, that'll be like $10,000. And the dude running the church is like, whoa, 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 $10,000? Like, you were just tinkering around on some pipes for like, five minutes. Um, I'm going to need an itemized invoice. And she was like, okay, great. Like $50 tinkering around on pipes for five minutes, $9,950 knowing which pipes to tinker around on. (laughs) So for me, that is the biggest shift that I wish I would see. We will not be doing timesheets. Do not hire us if you want us to be doing timesheets. That will never be the way that we work. Okay, so yes, I used to be as, as vociferous about this in some senses. Like, <laughs> I, I, there is obviously a misalignment of incentives around selling time as an operating thing, and ultimately, as a consulting hybrid thing, one of the things we say in principle is charge for what you know, not just what you do. 
Yes. And therefore, you need to charge a lot more for that hour if you're going to charge for an hour than you're currently charging. And you can't blend a rate across C-level executives and account administrators because that's a very bad idea because you're not valuing the seniority and expertise of the members and you're giving this flat structure, which is misleading to clients, which happens a lot or at least did in America contract negotiations, which I don't like. But at the same time, I don't think it's realistic for agencies that currently operate that are built into procurement-based or procurement-brokered relationships to change their billing structure because procurement won't allow it or understand it or understand how to price it. And therefore, at that level, it's unlikely to change. You can start now and try and start from that point. But equally, the market tends to sort of move towards what procurement allows for. So whilst I don't think it's a good way to sell what we do at at all, if it is the way we're going to sell what we do, here's here's the bit I've been thinking about. Okay, okay, tell me. If we do sell time, we should respect time in the same way, right? So you don't make margin up by working people at 150% of their time, which is what agencies, what I was told literally how we make money in New York agencies is we, we bill out people at 150% of their time. I'm like, that can't be legal. Like people just work longer hours, it's fine. And I was like, but no, if we're going to sell time, let's value the time of our employees and not use them as a kind of well to mop up work and squeeze it into smaller amounts of time to fit scopes because their life equally is valuable. And that kind of thing would help. And I would say for anyone who's interested in this topic, um, read Blair Inns, When Without Pitching, his blog, his newsletter. He's got some really great thoughts on that. And he does say what Ferris says. He's like, if you have an existing model, it's going to be real hard to shift that with current clients. Where you want to start is by thinking about your next client and structuring your relationship in that capacity. And there's trade-offs. And there's trade-offs always. Value-based pricing is not a panacea for business operations. It's just we're managing our own risk differently, right? If we say it costs us this much to do it and it takes me twice the time or half the time, I'm managing the risk and the upside of that deal to the, on the client, it's irrelevant. Yeah. It, but like, if you have unforeseen costs and you do things that involve many people operating across very large timeframes with unclear sign-off deadlines like agencies can, right? That could be a difficult way to manage your business, frankly. Anyway, so it, yeah. Yeah. I'm completely on the same page as, as you there. And if anything, I probably side closer to Rosie on, on that. I gave a talk recently on the billable hour and, and, and funnily enough, Blair Ends actually picked up a slide on it and shared it, which was not dissimilar to your organ story, Rosie, but the line I had was stop charging for the time it takes to do the magic trick and, and charge for the magic. Yes. And so we subsequently had Blair on a few weeks ago, but no, him and, and, and Tim Williams, I'll give a shout out to Ignition Consulting. Who's oh, yeah, they, they produce good content. I like that stuff. Yeah. I, I'm going to totally look up your presentation. And Blair, it's so fun. He's another husband and wife team. He works with his wife. So I'm always happy so often. And you're a husband and wife team as well, Giles, right? Yeah, correct. Yes. So I love that because so often when people find out that Ferris and I work together, they're like, oh, no, like I, I could <laughs> never do that. The line often <laughs> is, oh, I love my wife, but she'd probably kill me slash I'd probably kill her. That's what usually people say. And they think it's <laughs> hilarious. I'm like, it doesn't sound great, bro. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, have a lot of fun getting to, getting to know him and his wife and talking about the joys yeah. and trials of being married to your business partner, which could be and, a whole other podcast series. We yeah, could all we should do it. Awesome, we should right? do it. Manage two very strong egos and find the products <laughs> that suit your different skill sets. And, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. I resemble that remark. <laughs> you, you resemble it or resent it? No, resemble. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say I wasn't it, but I mean, I know there are two egos at play. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, managing teams doesn't get any easier. 
from two, <laughs> it becomes a more, like the coordination problem just gets harder and harder the more people there are. So yeah. I'm going to shift topics slightly. Katie, aka Special K, she's great. She's amazing. She's referenced an article that you wrote for Walk, Faris, three questions to ask about trends. She said, this has now become my go-to article after reading loads of trend reports. Please share a global or regional trend that you think will be useful for marketers. And Bruce Clark, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with, who I actually met in person a couple of weeks ago for the first time. He came in from Boston, right? Yes, yeah, correct. He was over in London and, and, and we met up, which was ace. And he particularly liked part of your well, the third question in particular, that sounded like he only liked a part of it. What I meant to say was he specifically liked a part of it. So I thought I'd add that. Yeah, no, thank you both. And Kirti, thank you very much for the... the you'd be surprised, he made a heart sign with his hands. You'd be surprised how much it means to me when people read my stuff at all. Genuinely, bro. Like, it's a niche audience to some degree. It always makes me really happy that people find it useful. So thank you for saying that. It does really make me happy. Anyway, so my thought was there is that like... It's a really big question. And by the nature of what I do, I tend to meta discuss issues like with trends. I, mean, I think the reason Prof Clark liked it was because this, the third question is about scarcity in the system and essentially understanding how business and money works. Where you find scarcity is where there's possible value creation, basically, because only scarce things have value. So I think that's his. Anyway, not waffling. I think it's a really hard question, but I was thinking about what could be a global one. Culture compass? Well, I like the culture compass. Everything is polarized and bouncing backwards and forwards. But I think what we've noticed, and it sort of works at a global level and at a market-based level as well, is what we were at some point calling the K-shaped recovery. So it's like audience, like the, the disappearance of the middle class, and it's sort of fragmenting into rich people on one side and everybody else on the other. And I think the whole world is also sort of doing that, kind of, with the global south, kind of on the other part of their journey, you know? So lots of big questions around climate change and responsibility and how consumers feel and stuff are quite different in what are still functionally emerging markets where, you know, TV isn't particularly well penetrated across India and Africa at this point. So it's just a different stage of growth that's going to be operating in a different way for a long time. So I think we're seeing that, like you're seeing lots of luxury versions of products like three and a half grand goggles from Apple. <laughs> like, th- th- I mean, Apple can do what it wants and it's always going to be fine, right? But just the idea of launching a product to the pseudo consumer at that price point would be impossible 10 years ago to imagine, in my opinion. Like, it's just, that's... And inflation obviously eats away a lot of that over the last 10 years as well, <laughs> it's true. But like, it's a sort of super premium world of millionaires and billionaires and there's kind of everyone else. and that, The rest of us. Yeah, that's sort of how it's... <laughs> It looks in lots of places, I think. Anyway. Okay, cool. I'm increasingly mindful of time. I told you I'm in, at risk of shooting over. So apologies, Mr. Humphrey. I've, I've not included your question, but not with any intent. And I think it's been covered. Okay, well, I'll do it on Twitter if you want. It's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. So our four pertinent poses we put to all of our guests. Let's reverse the order. So starting with you, Faris, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't give people advice. Um, I would say something like, don't worry about it so much. And, you know, read David Epstein's book, Range, and try lots of different stuff. Try even more random stuff when you're young and and the switching costs are low. Because I genuinely think my career, inverted commas, if anything, has been characterized by constantly moving in and out of the same systems. And I think I'm a better, whatever I am now, -er. Because of that. <laughs> so, whatever I am now. Love it. Yeah, exactly. Whatever I am now. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, then, for you, Rosie, if you could banish one thing from our industry, what would it be and why? 
Oh my gosh, timesheets. I mean, you already heard it from me. I'm not going to go on my little rant again, but yeah. well, I'll, I'll add one, which will be like misogyny would be the other thing. Obviously, that'd be <laughs> great to banish from the world at large, but I'll, I'll throw yes. that in. And Ferris, I'm so surprised we on that first one. You did not say wear sunscreen. Oh yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do think yeah. about that song a lot. I, yeah. Especially around birthdays. <laughs> I've got it. It's, it's funny actually, for some reason it's on, I've got it on my iTunes or whatever it is on my phone and it comes on. It seems to prefer that every time I'm linked to a Bluetooth device and it chooses a track to automatically play, it always <laughs> seems to choose that one. I don't know. I don't know the powers that be are, are doing, telling me something, but anyway. I love that for you. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, the last two of our pertinent poses, it goes to show how badly I've planned the order here should probably be you know, addressed to both of you. So number three is any books that you would recommend, aside from paid attention, which we will, of course, link to. <laughs> yes, I particularly like the thank you section in paid attention. Um, <laughs> I'll do a nonfiction and a fiction. So or I'll do two nonfictions. One, To Sell is Human by Dan Pink. I think we think of sales as a dirty word in advertising, but he talks about uh, the rise of non-sales selling and selling things like ideas. So that's really helped me in terms of negotiation in terms of just rethinking about sales and not thinking of it as a dirty word. Not industry related, but also industry related. The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. That is something that has really changed my life personally and how I view the world and different people and the way that different people were raised and are thinking about you know, massive problems kind of come through these different lenses that he discusses. So those are my two nonfiction picks. And then on the fiction side of things, XX by, I always say Rian Hughes, but I guess it's probably Ryan. It's R-I-A-N-N. And this was a recommendation from our friend Rupert Halper. He's at Google in Auckland. And this book is truly amazing. It is about ideas. It's about alien cultures. It's about the future. It's about the past. There's a book inside of the book. The whole cool (laughs) thing about it too is that this guy was a graphic designer. So he uses art to tell stories. You're looking at NASA transcripts. You're looking at visual art to get this whole picture. Um, I read it on my Kindle, but highly recommend that you, if you do take my advice and read it, which you totally should, probably better as a physical book because some of the art was like difficult to zoom in on on a Kindle. But that's probably the book we've bought for the most people in the past year. Awesome. I've written lots and lots of reading lists and stuff. So I'm not going to talk about any of those books, I guess. Uh, I'm trying to read tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow at the moment because, well, I say trying, I haven't opened it yet, but I've got it. I'm carrying it around, <laughs> because everybody I know said you should read this and, it's, and I think they're probably right. But the stuff that I found very open, like inspiring about digital and the internet was early, like Kevin Kelly and Clay Shirky stuff. Um, yeah. that I found very impactful at that point in my career because I felt like it was a bringing together of worlds I suppose and then just in terms of like if your brain is feeling lazy like mine I think understanding comics the comic book about comic books by Scott McCloud is extremely interesting like comic book literary theory which has a lot to tell you about how I think ideas and presentations and still frames that tell a story come to life so I I would recommend that to anybody it's it's a good one and one more in the mix we're we're both voracious readers but um... I was I was 
Ferris also turned me on to a book called Stone Junction. This is what he used to say was his favorite book. And when we first started dating, I was like, I'm definitely not going to read this because the cover is absolutely horrible. Um, (laughs) But it is a perfect example of don't judge a book by its cover. It's kind of like hard to find, but this amazing like hero's journey and... Jim Dodge, I believe the author is. Yeah, so we'll throw that one in. It's very good. Amazing. For some reason, I have a weird memory when it comes to books that have been recommended on the show. And I know that five of those six have never come up before, which is amazing. And actually quite surprising because Dan Pink is a name that I'm familiar with and I I always expect him to come up more than he does. But that book has never come up before. So amazing. And then number four, which, which again, I think is only fair to be addressed to you both, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guests who have to give their reasons why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? We have a new nibbling. Oh, bad. Right? We have a new nibbling, a new niece on Rosie's little sister's side. Yes. And Beck, her name is Beck Foster. Whitson, both cool names. Uh, so we can, I mean, you know, in the spirit of the future, dedicated to her. The kids are our future. Yeah, yes, I believe I love the children that. are our future. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I would also say, just being a little bit selfish here, but I'll dedicate this to Ashley and Chelsea, who are on our team. And like, you know, celebrities have their dream teams that like make them look good every day. And it's like Ashley and Chelsea truly make our lives work. I could, we could not do this without their support yeah we're not together me and rosie are not like genius deals there's there's four of us plus a friendly community around our voltron kind of foursome you know like yeah yeah Yeah, so those two ladies like oh they just they do so much for us and they're so joyful to like just be around and interact with and then lastly this is just coming to me so i'm just gonna throw it in steve chapman artist i just i i feel like i want to dedicate this to him because okay. he's like creativity he's and very inspiring fun big, yeah. big fan of his yeah. okay cool well this episode is very proudly dedicated firstly to your new niece congratulations beck uh, to ashley and chelsea who are a significant part of what you do by the sounds of things very um humble dedication and steve chapman Thank you. Who inspires us. Thank you. So as a final call to action to everyone listening, we will list everything that we have discussed, links to all of the books, to Sell is Human, The Righteous Mind, XX, Stone Junction, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Understanding Comics. We'll link to Rosie and Farris's newsletter. But how else can our listeners get more of you? I'm on Instagram Rosie Yakub. Most of my Instagram is like food, yoga, and nature. So if you're like looking for nice. connect on the personal side, that is great. And Ferris, what about you? I'm still grimly <laughs> hanging on to my Twitter account. I was wondering if this was going to come up. <laughs> no, I mean, I still, I yeah, I love Twitter. I have always loved Twitter, and it's having some problems. But defensive posture with his <sighs> arms, like immediately go from like to cross. It's emotionally, to... it's emotionally complex, but I'm still for the time being at Faris on Twitter. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm of the same opinion with Twitter. I can't turn it off, even though I know it's a bin fire of sorts, but <laughs> um, wonderful. Well, we will, we will include your Instagram and, and, and Twitter links and we'll encourage people to subscribe to your newsletter, which, which is, um, well, it's been going for a long time now, but it's, it's significant and it's a, uh, 
I'm a huge fan. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for giving us not being a prisoner of your own preferences. And I need to think of something that Faris said just for democracy reasons. What do you know, not what you do? Yeah, there you go. But there was so much, guys. And I'm, honestly, I'm so grateful for your time. I enjoyed it so much talking to you. It's been a huge privilege to chat. It was a pleasure. Right back at you. Thank yeah, you thank you so much, Charles. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. Or you can email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp.agency. Yeah!